I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. I think the biggest challenge with being an entrepreneur is just overcoming your own head games and sense of self-confidence. And it's so daunting when you think about where you sit, you know, in your bedroom with an idea versus what you want to go build. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we chat with Ollie co-founder and CEO Eric Ryan, whose line of gummy vitamins, smoothies, and protein bars address sleep, stress, good skin, and energy. Before Ollie, Eric had a huge hit as co-founder of Method, the natural cleaning brand. But as his Method co-founder Adam Lowry explained on a recent Unfinished Biz episode, co-founding is easy. What comes afterward? That's hard. The biggest mistake we made was we grew too fast. And we got to 2008 and we were spread too thin. Number one and number two in our category came after us with direct competition. And there was obviously a big shift in the economy. Find out how Eric used the lessons he learned from Method to scale Ollie differently, why he still prefers a co-founder to the solo journey, and why he's betting the future of health on millennials. Unfinished Biz starts now. Robin, Eric Ryan is a truly unique entrepreneur. He's created two absolutely beautiful brands, and the one he started with, Method, how many times do you hear people who want to start a brand go, I want to be the method of blank? That's all the time. It's that passion he has for a product's visual identity. And you look at that iconic method bottle and what he's done the same at Ollie. And interestingly, Adam Lowry, uh, Eric's co-founder at Method, joined us on episode 10 of Unfinished Biz, and he didn't hold back. Adam literally said that during their time together, the two of them hated each other, but they worked through it, and now they're closer than ever. Eric joined us at our VMG World headquarters in beautiful San Francisco to tell us more. At an early age, I knew what I wanted to be, which was uh, an entrepreneur. Just didn't know what I wanted to actually start. And uh, my career came out of advertising. And so for me, I wanted to start a business that leveraged my skills in, in marketing and advertising and started thinking a lot, inspired by Richard Branson, about not creating a, a new business model, but really find a tire category and, and find a way to reinvent it. And then you started the business with Adam Lauer. How, how did you guys know each other? So Adam and I go way back. We... Oh, wow. We knew each other since probably fifth grade. We grew up sailing together in the Detroit area. And then we ended up as roommates with five other guys in arguably the dirtiest flat in San Francisco in our <laughs> 20s. So did that play any role of wanting to start a, a cleaning products business? Well, the joke among our roommates was uh, that this place was such a shithole. We should probably start a cleaning products company to, to clean it up. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was a lot of serendipity. We were uh, brought together as our, our friendship, and we started talking about um, the opportunity here. And he's like, you know, I have a degree in chemical engineering. I'm like, that would be useful. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, Adam and I probably could never have planned it. It was just sheer luck as far as knowing each other as friends, but coming from such radically different backgrounds professionally. Um, Adam was working as a client scientist. I was working in advertising. So we kind of, for shorthand, call it style and substance, but really bringing together two very different points of view into a, a single uh, brand. And can you sort of timestamp this for us in the sense of when you guys were thinking about starting, what what was that time frame? What, what else was out there? Yeah, this is the turn of the century, which sounds like a long time ago now. <laughs> it sounds pretty profound. <laughs> uh, right around 2000. Uh, we started playing with it. We launched in on February 28, 2001 in Amali Stones here in San Francisco, which, as you guys know, is a wonderful year to start a business. So uh, <laughs> what doesn't kill you um, makes you stronger. But it, you know, because of everything that happened um, within that year and then following the capital markets, it, it, it put us in a position where we had to work that much harder to prove it out. But how did you know how to start a business at that point? You know, it's particularly a cleaning products business. Yeah, it's such a great question. A, a, Great question. I get asked that a lot. Of we knew nothing about how do you sell a product, how do you make a product. Uh, you know, we were completely naive. And it's I always think about it being a little bit of an investigator and starting to figure out like, okay, well, we need um, 
somebody to make the formula for us and just started Google searching. Okay, we need somebody who sells bottles. And it's just one, one conversation after another, you get to the right people. But I think the thing that's a lot of entrepreneurs forget, it's, it's not only finding the right person, but it's getting them to believe in you. Because chances are your, your credit is probably not too good <laughs> as a startup. You don't have a lot of capital. So you, you need to sell your partners in the same way that you need to sell investors. How did how'd you come up with the iconic name and packaging that everybody kind of knows and loves today? Yeah, so step one, and this is similar to Ali. So step one was like find the space. And I just started looking at that cleaning category in the grocery store that was so big, but it was a sea of sameness. Everything felt the same, looked the same. So that was a clue dig here. And as I was digging in, I was trying to figure out, okay, what cultural shift is the category missing? Because that's what I understood from advertising is consumer behavior and looking for a, a macro trend that you could exploit. And as I started thinking about it, the really obvious thing was lifestyling of the home. Mm-hmm. Nobody was thinking about the relationship of these products to your home. And why could it be beautiful enough you'd leave it out on the counter versus hidden underneath the sink, out of sight, out of mind? Why could the fragrances smell amazing that you would want to use it all the time? And you, you spend more time looking at a dish soap than you actually do using it. So I really wanted to th- – I thought about how do we change that relationship? And Adam and I were talking about it and um, uh, Adam had a lot more experience than I did with with chemicals and you know helped me understand like cleaning is also a really dirty industry. You pollute when you clean. You try to use poison to make your homes healthier. And if you look at the number of childhood poisonings that occur every year from common household products, we quickly realized if we were lucky enough to be successful, we would leave a legacy of harm. Hmm. So we realized the second big cultural shift was um, wellness and sustainability. And I guess we're taking credit for it because nobody's told us they've done it before of really bringing together high design and deep sustainability into a single product offering, which up till then, beautiful things were not sustainable. Sustainable things certainly were not beautiful. Were there any other categories that you were looking at where you said, hey, this is an interesting analog about sort of bringing lifestyle into a bit of a sleepy category? Yeah. I mean, I looked at a lot of different spaces from like disposable plates to, I mean, even pizza. I like, for some reason, I fascinated by really boring categories and the belief that there's no such thing as a boring category, Mm -hmm. just boring brands and finding an emotional connection where it doesn't exist. And for Adam and I, we're not passionate about cleaning. We rarely bring our work home with us. Like I hate doing the dishes. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we were, you know, the skepticism when we were starting and even my mom's side, she's like, I've never seen you make your bed. Are you really sure you're the right person to do this? So um, for us, it was trying to find what is that personal passion. And for me, it was I was passionate about design, so brought to this category. Adam was very passionate about sustainability. So walk us through. You you have this this idea of a business, but now you know you've got to go and find a formulator. You've got to go and find you know you know folks were going to design the bottle how did how did you go about doing that yeah so it's it's i think the biggest challenge with being an entrepreneur is just overcoming your own head games and sense of self-confidence and it's so daunting when you think about where you sit you know in your bedroom with an idea versus what you want to go build and so what we did is we just broke everything down to bite-sized little steps and so in the beginning i didn't even think about it starting a company i was just thinking do i have a good idea and that's all i focused on so what I did is I wrote up um, what I call the concept book, and it was this beautifully you know st- I put a lot of work into it, and it laid out the concept for method, and I gave it to the twenty smartest people I knew from a diverse set of backgrounds, and I told them don't don't come back and tell me why it's good because people generally want to not stop on someone's dreams, mm-hmm. uh, so they deferred to the good versus the bad. But I said your job is to shoot holes in it. Come back and tell me why you think this will fail. So I really gave them permission to beat it up. Right. And nobody came back with a really valid reason other than why has nobody done this before? Mm-hmm. And so that gave me a little bit more confidence to take it from idea to concept. And as you were hatching this idea, were you were you still working? Were you yeah, I was working in advertising. So this was this was a side project. Gotcha. Which I think is the right way to do it because yeah. you've got the security of a paycheck while you're the you know, freedom to noodle on new ideas. Right. So when did you know you were on to something? Still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, the, st- the second step, which sort of lead to it, uh, was bringing it to life and concepting it. And so that's where we had a f- we found uh, an East Bay company that believed in us, was willing to fill the product. We found a bottle manufacturer. We created our first products, and we gave those to our friends. 
And that's where we started to believe we were onto something where they generally liked it, used the product. And this was just the two of you and just some the third party folks you were working with. Yep. Got it. But was there a point turning point from a retail standpoint? You started at Molly Stones, but what was a turning point in retail where you knew that this this was this was going to be something special? Well, the next step of proof of concept was getting into retail. So we went to the 30 local Bay Area independents, the Adronicos, the Molly Stones, the places where the store manager can make the buying decision. Right. So you get in there at 6 in the morning before the store opens. You find this really grumpy guy, and you've got 30 seconds to pitch while he's stocking uh, canned beans on the shelf. Well, just how did, how did you know that within those specific doors, they actually have buying power? Is this just trial and error? Or? Yeah, because this was like the investigation part. So when I was passing out the book, I was also like getting a lot, like getting names of people who did this. So I found uh, a couple of people who had done this before, interviewed them, just trying to get as smart as I could as fast. Gotcha. So we went in, and I think you know those managers basically took it only because they knew we'd keep showing up. Um, and it taught us how to pitch the product. We got into those thirty stores, and the point where I really felt like we had something was I had my cell phone as our customer service on the back of the bottle. And I started getting calls from people saying, <laughs> "That's dangerous." I just want to say, I love your cucumber bathroom cleaner. Which at first, I thought it was friends playing a joke on us. And then when I realized, after a few probably rude comments back, um, that these actually were genuine people, <laughs> <laughs> not friends like, <laughs> taking the piss out of us, yeah. that uh, we were onto something. We had created an emotional spark in a bathroom cleaner, and if we could do that, we could do anything. And how many items did you have? Do you have, you know? Two skews, three skews. What would that first set look like for you? They were just surface cleaners. We had a shower, glass, bathroom, and kitchen. Got really it. simple. So I think many consumers look at method and, and target as a retailer synonymously. How did you break through into target? Oh, it's so easy. We just called them and they took it. <laughs> that's, that's what we figured. Um, <laughs> no, that, that was Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> a little, little, little easier the second time around. Yeah. The um, So what we did is like kind of going back to that scale. So like uh, created the concept. We had concept pilot scale. It was a simple steps I thought about. And at this point, we had uh, raised our Series A. We had built up to about 800 stores, grocery stores on the West Coast. We had started going to chains like Safe, uh, Safeway and um, Albertsons. Uh, but we needed a national player to give us scale. Uh, Walmart's not necessarily the right place to launch a premium brand. Kmart was and still is a train wreck. So that really left Target. And, of course, we shot off our mouth in our Series A raise of we're going to get Target. They're about design. We're about design. <laughs> Guest affinity. Uh, the first meeting went okay. They didn't like the name. They didn't like the size of the bottle or the colors. And finally, the buyer just looks at me. He's like, I kind of hate to say this, but it's a snowball's chance in hell. So we're like, dumb and dumber. You're like, so you're saying there's a chance. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. So, you know, we had no choice. Um, you know, so much about being an entrepreneur is the road forward always looks easier than the road backwards of giving up. So I was able to use my relationships and marketing to get an audience with Target Marketing in exchange for agreeing to show up with Karen Rashid, the famous industrial designer, who we were spending the majority of our final dollars from that Series A round to ask him to concept out and really bring – we thought industrial design could be such a big part of the proposition. Mm -hmm. And uh, he shows up in his big silver coat suit. Uh, We had the first product – Fedexed in that morning as a prototype. Mm-hmm. I had just enough time to fill it with dish soap, but not actually even test it. And during our big dog and pony show, when it got passed around, and the gentleman who said that squeezes it and goes, "Oh my god, even I would use this." Hmm. And that was the moment I knew I could probably pause in the business school ap- applications. <laughs> nice. And that that moment was when they gave you a whole standalone method set in Target, or well, they gave us an end cap. Okay. Which is huge. Mm-hmm. In 90 stores in the Chicago land in Northern California area. And they just said, hit this number. And you got national distribution. So it seemed fair enough. So we start uh, getting out there in stores, setting up displays ourselves to make sure it gets set up on time. We're passing out coupons. Uh, we're doing everything we can. We're missing our number. And then we start going to stores and realizing our dish soap. So we create the first inverted product at mass where when you squeeze it, it comes out of the bottom versus the top. Mm-hmm. So our thesis was like, why flip over your dish soap when you use right. it? And the fragrances were incredibly unique. So consumers were smelling it, wanted to smell it. They're pulling up the cap in a way it should not come off. So therefore it didn't go back on. So we had these beautiful sets of raining dish soap mm. across our products, which is a tough way to sell. 
So we kept missing our number, cleaning up stores. <laughs> and finally, a uh, new buyer came on the desk and she asked us to come to Minneapolis. I'm like, oh, I can't believe we're going to spend our last few dollars on a plane ticket just to be rejected. And we got there and she saw how incremental it was, how differentiated and profitable it was and gave us national distribution. And we'll do over $100 million in retail sales at Target this year. And so that decision, when you actually walked into the room, you were completely not expecting that type of reception. We were pretty nervous, mm. uh, but again, you don't you know you don't yeah. give up, and it's you know luck plays such a factor in, in any success story, and that was probably one of our bigger luckier breaks is somebody who had a vision came onto the desk at the right time and, and got behind us. And what gave you the confidence to know that hey, this is we're we are ready to actually go and support Target when they're actually leaning in to our brand as well? Or did did you know? They were I mean, right once we got in, they were incredibly wonderful and still are wonderful to work with. And one of the first things they did is I, I think probably our second or third meeting, the Deb Danielson at the time who was the hand wash buyer came to the meeting and pitched us to the idea of doing a hand wash. And within six months, we had that national on shelf. We have like a 30 share today at, at Target and Handwash. Mm-hmm. So they started pitching us ideas right away and saw that we were capable. And we, you know, I, I came from a background in advertising, so I didn't know how to sell, but I understood clients. And so I just treated and still do treat Target as a client. My mm-hmm. job is to help grow their business. Some areas I can help, some areas I can't. But either way, that, that's my job. How'd you fund Method along the way? So, very traditional path of stepping up. So, Adam and I, uh, both put in uh, fifty thousand dollars each to uh, get it from that that concept uh, into actually having a product on shelf. Um, my grandfather passed away and left me fifty thousand dollars, so I was very fortunate to even have that that access to capital. Certainly couldn't have done it without it. Uh, we then did an angel round, which was you know roommates putting in ten buck or ten thousand a pop. Grandma gave me twenty thousand. <laughs> And then from there, we raised our first Series A with Stephen Herb Simon and then uh, raised uh, follow-up rounds after that. So we stepped – you know, with each round, we had a very dis- uh, set of deliverables that I wanted to make sure we, we achieved with that money. So we were very careful. And how did you think about for each round how much money you were, you were asking for? We – I always start – same thing with Ali. Start with you know, what is our plan, whether it's a one-year or three-year, depending on where you are in the lifespan of a company – but always said of like, what do we – I always think about proof and promise. Mm-hmm. And so I would start with what do we need to prove in this next round? How much money do we need to prove that with a little bit margin for error? Mm-hmm. And that's how I've typically driven fundraising. So it's primarily you're building case studies. But do the case studies – are they usually in one-year increments, three-year increments? Or is timing not not the determining factor here? Timing, I think it changes the, as the, scale, the business scales. So in the beginning, literally, it was probably, if I think back, it was probably like six months, you know, very, very short. Right. Like, okay, we got enough cash for six months. In six months, we got to get it on shelf and we got to prove at 30 stores it's selling. Mm-hmm. Great. Done. Now we got 12 months to prove regional distribution and then we went to national. And I would just layer the money around those. And I love the discipline that it brought. Mm-hmm. Or at least having these very specific goals, was that something that you guys had internally or was that something that you communicated across the entire organization? Yeah, across the entire organization, you know, board down. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, at Ali too, we do the same thing. Very clear set of goals. We all work on them together to define them, buy it in. And something I always, um, you know, preach to other entrepreneurs with, when they're raising capital is get really clear, what are you going to prove with this money? Mm-hmm. And um, stay focused on it. So what what ended up leading to the decision to ultimately sell method? We were um, we had a very patient capital base, and they were you know in the brand for some of them were over ten years, and we were getting to the point where it was time to provide some liquidity, and we explored two options of more of a partial versus a full, and from that we found a really great partner in the uh, Sorensen family out of the UK who uh, their father years ago had purchased Ecover, um, sleepy sleepy company out of Belgium, but they were the original green gangsters who really <laughs> invented this category, had incredible heritage, founded back in 1979 and really were the green pioneers and had built a sizable brand in Europe. And their pitch to us was to merge the two companies together. It would give us access to up plant in Belgium. It would give us capital, go build our first plant 
in North America. The company would stay true to its mission, its values, and we would continue to scale it in a way that um, Adam and I were really excited about while providing a nice return for our investors who had been along with us for, for such a long time. And do you still have an ongoing role at all in in Method? I am. I'm still uh, – same with Matt, uh, Adam. We're still involved at A Light Touch. We've gone on – we're CEOs of our new startups right now, and most of our time and energy is focused on that. But we continue to stay in support. I just did a uh, – help lead a, a project with an uh, uh, art studio over in Oakland um, called uh, Creative Growth for Disabled Artists and helped pull together a partnership between um, ourselves at Method, Creative Growth, and Target. And um, we just launched a full line and really got behind it in some pretty unique ways. I just love that intersection of altruism and art. It's hard to do, but when you do it, it's, it's magical. So I've got key projects like that. I spend time with the leadership team and um, helping out with uh, retail efforts. But it's fun. It's, like, it's always like going home. Mm-hmm. As you look back on the method journey, are there some certain key learnings of things that you would have done differently? Oh, God, so many. I mean, we made what are some st- of the highlights? <laughs> we made so many stupid mistakes. We were just lucky our mistakes didn't kill us. And that's the, the fun of doing it a second time around is being able to apply that learning. You know, the, the biggest mistake we made was we grew too fast. And we were on such a roll in the you know, those early years where – I mean we showed up at number seven on the Inc. 500 list. And again, we compete in categories that are you know, pretty flat. Mm-hmm. So every dollar we make comes off a competitor, and those competitors are the largest multinationals right. <laughs> in the world, who have a 150 year head start. So it's not it's not easy growth either. And we got to 2008, and we were spread too thin. Number one and number two in our category came after us with direct competition, and there was obviously a big shift in the economy. Um. We didn't see a pullback from consumers, but we saw a pullback from retail support because during that time, of course, they were so focused on uh, supporting opening price point and a premium brand is just not going to get the same level of a love for a retailer. And those those three things all hit us at the same time. And uh, we had to step back, make the business a little smaller before making it bigger again, make make some hard, hard changes. Um, but that was the biggest learning was overextending ourselves. And when the big guys came after you, what what exactly happened? Was it a, was it a pricing play? Was it did they start copying your design? Yeah, I mean they were very strategic in. They felt like the two biggest opportunities were green products were too expensive and didn't work. So hence you saw green works at mm-hmm. the price discount. Like their strategy <laughs> was incredibly transparent. Mm-hmm. What they forgot is the power of building a brand. And what Method did, Adam and I, when we decided we were going to create an eco-friendly green brand, it was a horrible business decision because at the time the segment was so small. So the only way we were going to build a sizable business was to figure out how do we get people into a green product who would never buy a green product. Right. Hence the style, the, the fragrance, and the branding. And so it's rare that you get – People who come into a brand for two radically different reasons, people who love the sustainability could care less about the design and, and vice versa. And our competition really underestimated the, the power of the brand in the other half of the house of what we were doing. And I see my identity as an entrepreneur. And I think part of being an entrepreneur is going to work scared every day. And Method was you know, very fortunate that the company was doing so well in such an incredibly – talented team over there and Drew as CEO has just done a great job and the leadership team. So it wasn't scary to go to work anymore because um, you were surrounded by incredible people doing great work every day and the business was thriving. And I started feeling like I was losing my identity as an entrepreneur. And I was working with Target on the creation of the Beta Matter program and we were identifying... Explain what that means. Oh, yeah. So... Uh, Target had a bit of a problem where collectively they had all these great emerging brands, you know, like Annie's and Shabani at the time and Method, but they weren't getting credit for from their guests for having these mm-hmm. these brands. And so that was part of the problem they were trying to solve. But what we saw was an opportunity to create a platform at Target to recreate a lot of what I had done with Method, which was to um, – 
use Target as more of a launching pad for new brands that would benefit Target because it would get them first innovation mm-hmm. and it would benefit the entrepreneur as a, this, this platform. So that was the idea of creating a coalition of brands called Made to Matter. And then we do a lot of internal things where we bring together all the founders of these companies like Justin's was there um, that would help also uh, – there's just something good about having a lot of entrepreneurs running around the building. Mm-hmm. And as we were trying to identify brands for the first year, uh, we couldn't find anybody in the nutrition or supplement space that we thought really fit. We had Cliff for bars who was great. Kind came on later. Uh, but there was nobody in that nutrition space. It's a big category. So I started popping around it. And the first thing I noticed was like, people were stressing out to choose something that was healthy for them. There was just such confusion in the aisle. So that was the clue dig here. And I started playing with it and falling in love with this idea of going after this category. So ultimately, I made the decision um, to go start Ollie. And at the Time I would never have imagined we were starting Made to Matter that a year later I'd be launching a new brand off of that that same platform. Yeah, so how did you come up with the name Ollie? So with naming, it's so much about figuring out what you want a name to represent. And so I knew we wanted a name that represented friendliness in the aisle because everything was very, you know, pharma sounding like Centrum Mm -hmm. or very folksies like Nature's Garden. Right. And that was the brief. And Ellen Dye, who's a great close friend and creative director over at Apple, he was helping me think through ideas. And we were actually uh, driving down to the U.S. Open. While I was driving, he was flipping through names. And one of the names he had was Ollie Slate. And it was kind of inspired by Warby Parker. Mm-hmm. And it also easy way to get through a URL and trademarks if you just combine two names. Um, so we thought Ollie for friendly, Slate for a clean slate. And then as I started applying Ollie to the bottle and Figured out that a squatter had it, that I could probably get Ollie.com. So mm-hmm. doing trademark search, realized that we would be able to get Ollie. And it was um, you know, super straightforward. Same thing with Method. We got really lucky on both companies. Only had one, one name idea, and that was the name. Those are powerful names. And did you have a co-founder for this one too? Did you and Adam do this one together as well? Or how did you think about team building on, on Ollie? Yeah, I co-founded it with Brad Harrington and I'm a big believer in, you know, duos and it's fun to have a partner and when, to have somebody that, you know, you can, you push each other harder than you probably would push yourself uh, on your own. And I was still, you know, transitioning, um, from more full-time method. And so Brad was a great partner in, uh, being able to, uh, to, to help work with me as I was juggling both for, for a while there. Is there a lot of overlap with the rest of the team on folks of, of folks who you've worked with before that to really help you get Ollie off the ground? Yeah. It was, I'm you know, really fortunate to have a, a great group of people who I've worked with in the past who uh, agreed to do a second <laughs> tour of duty with me. <laughs> and I, you know, at the top, I, a philosophy is really building a organization that's about artists and operators. And, you know, from leadership team all the way through the company, we've got people who I see are more of the makers, you know, like our creative team, um, to the people who really know how to operate a great company. And we try to get that that mix right. And uh, a lot of these people I've worked with in the past, so we are growing so fast. Uh, it was just great to have people uh, join who on, you know, day one, we can do the no look pass with each other and just mm-hmm. run. And what were some of the learnings that you've had from Method that you directly applied into your Ollie experience? Yeah, you know, a lot of it was like the by the the playbook and it, you know, what we wrote in the the book, the Method Method Seven Obsessions, which were the things that we saw as competitive advantages. I brought those just straight over of how we thought about it. You know, and it's just a simple philosophy that everything starts with culture. So build the great the greatest culture possible, which includes everything from you know how you set up your talent to setting the tone. For the culture to the office space. So we just moved over to a new space just down the street from you guys here in the park, which we branded Camp Ollie. It's this, you know, 100-year-old military warehouse, and we gave it this real camp theme. Um, so everything is about starting with the culture, and then from the culture comes great products. And the products are kind of like a souvenir of the culture. And if you get the culture right and you get the products right, the marketing gets a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Anything that you learned at Method that you had to unlearn when you actually started Ollie? You know, we learned we're, – we're big believers in learning from our mistakes. Mm-hmm. And even in the book we wrote, uh, we ended every chapter with an air autopsy of sharing you know, a mistake we made and what we learned from it. Um, I'm a big belief of the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. 
So the things we brought over, I didn't have to unlearn anything because mm-hmm. we had learned them there, <laughs> what not to do or what to do. Right. But yeah, I mean, I'm running a lot of the same playbook uh, at Meth- at Ali that we had very dialed in at Method, and it's been just a treat to see it at work. I mean, there are a lot of obviously stark parallels, right? Uh, somewhat sleepy-ish category, yep. um, really focusing on brand, focusing on product. But these two businesses are built in two different time periods. And I think marketing has changed pretty dramatically during these these two eras. How has that affected have you, how you've thought about activating your brand? It has. It's a, it's a, a great question. But at Method, I think we we're so far ahead of the curve on the way we thought about applying design, creativity, and even social media and the idea of people against dirty, which we coined in 2002. Mm-hmm. So we were well ahead of it. I'd say the big difference here now is we can deploy those tools in ways that we, we couldn't before. And you know, you look at Pinterest and um, Instagram and such visual mediums dominate marketing today. And so building a brand that has a strong identity and kind of a memory structure to it, we can apply it in ways that are scale so much faster than we could have done with method in the early years. But the fundamentals of how I think about a brand, a relationship, those to me are are unchanged. But um, I think the biggest difference is you can just scale so much faster. Right. It's just better tools, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. much more and more predictable. Yeah. Has there been something that worked well for you at Method that you tried to apply at Ollie that hasn't worked out as you've hoped? Great question. Um, I'm sure something will. It hasn't yet that I can think of. The you know the biggest lesson from method that I brought over was go after better economics. <laughs> um, what do you mean by that? Soap is not the highest margin category. Mm-hmm. It's not the fastest growing category. I'm okay with hyper competitive categories as long as you have a really meaningful differentiated. I'd rather go after a big category that's competitive but have a point of differentiation than a really niche category that's sleepy. And going into uh, the nutrition space, it's growing double digits and it's a higher dollar ring. You know, most of our products retail for about $14. Um, so the math is just so much more friendly. Right. Yeah, and the consumption rates are are high. You're gonna they are high. Yeah, and I love consumer. You know, reoccurring income businesses are the best, right? Because <laughs> every dollar you build, hopefully, if you had a great product, run the business the right way, that dollar keeps coming back every year. So, in many ways, this business was incubated at Target. How do you think about scaling outside of Target? Yeah, and it was you know, Target was a, a really wonderful partner. I took them this idea as. 10 slides in PowerPoint, high concept, and they got behind it right away. And, um, you know, we gave them um, a year exclusive. Uh, We work really closely, you know, with them on a lot of new innovation, and they've just been wonderful partners. But then the reality is, like, to really build a meaningful brand, you can't build private label. And the way we think about it is as we're continuing to really scale our our distribution, which we have scaled it quite aggressively across Food Drug Mass Club in the last uh, couple of years, we really watch closely on uh, Target's uh, growth. And we are just seeing, you know, year three, we're up 100% still over last year, just tremendous growth. And then same thing at Method, like what happens is that as we're able to afford to turn on more marketing – it disproportionately always um, rewards those who got behind you and leaned in early. So, so related to that, how did you raise capital to scale on this business versus method? You know, this was such a different situation. I mean, with uh, I still can't believe people were willing to invest in us when we were starting method. Two guys who knew nothing about soap <laughs> <laughs> going to take on uh, the likes of Unilever, Clorox, P and the G, who I like to call P and the motherfucking G. <laughs> Uh, so we were so lucky. Uh, this time around was was very different. I was, you know, fortunate to be able to do the seed round myself. And then we took uh, capital. I had a rule. Uh, we took capital only from people who uh, their previous relationships. So a lot of people who were involved with me at Method, they were all friends, and they either were current or former operators. So I wanted be surrounded by people who know what it's like to be in the trenches every day of building a business. Um, some of them have gone on to be, they're not professional investors and in running a fund, but their life was they've started. Mm-hmm. Everybody on our cap table has started a company at some point in their careers. And what's your vision for Ollie from here? You know, we're, um, first of all, we're having a blast. 
it's been really, really fun. But our, our long-term vision is to really build a great lifestyle nutrition brand that's uh, built a great audience among Gen X and, and millennials. And so we're heads down executing that plan. You'll see a lot coming from us next year. Mm-hmm. And similar to how met, what method was to the home, this will be to nutrition. So you built the business, you know, with the millennials in mind and trying to get a, a brand that, you know, they would have affinity for, but, you know, obviously they shop in slightly different ways than, you know, past generations. So how has that affected your own go-to-market strategy for Ollie? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, just kind of laddering up for a second, the way I, I thought about with Method in this is if you look at how traditional CPG companies were built, they were built about around synergies of where the assets were at that time, which were their plants, their factories. So like if I could make this kind of soap, I could make this. Today, I think it's really, you know, the cost of building a brand so much more is media and influence. And so building a master brand and then taking that brand across different categories to serve that audience. But at the end of the day, I think it's that relationship with the audience is the real cost and the asset. So as we're building a core following with a millennial audience, the goal is to grow with that audience as they continue to take center stage. But the biggest shift is you know, really towards the role of e-commerce mm-hmm. and how do we build a brand in a like a lot of ways we try to behave like a digitally native brand, which we're not, but employing a lot of the same tactics. Like mm-hmm. we've done a lot of celebrity work on Instagram as an example. Mm-hmm. And um, it's so much about it is is really building a connection with them in a way that I think wasn't really possible before. And we're, you know, we're figuring it out every day, too, which is half the fun of it. Right after the break, we'll talk more with our guest, Ollie co-founder and CEO, Eric Ryan. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can catch up on all our episodes at unfinishedbiz.com and chat with us on Twitter at unfin underscore biz. Subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. If you like the show, leave us a review. We love the feedback. And now, back to our episode with Ollie co-founder and CEO, Eric Ryan. I think it's actually cuts across both brands for both Method and Ollie. I think product has been, you know, if not king, it's up there in terms of the key differentiator. So how does that, how do you come up with that idea? How do you make sure that that's sort of that central theme across business? I think it started for me personally, just a passion for product. Like I love physical product and I want to create companies that Everything starts with the product. And there's so few companies that really do it. You know, Nike and Apple are probably one of the better examples of it. You obsess over that product. And a lot of CPG companies put so much more money into the marketing versus the product. I think your product today is your marketing. So one of the phrases we would have at Method is cutting steel is a media expense. Meaning when you go create a product, you could choose to use a stock package or you could create a custom Custom's expensive. You got to buy a block of steel and you got to cut it into a mold. You know, like a quarter of a million dollars. It's a lot of money. You could build a house for that in most parts of the country. Mm-hmm. But if you take that quarter of a million and you drop it into on the PL, the marketing side, quarter of a million doesn't go very far. Right. Buys you an FSI in most major markets. Right. <laughs> so the way I've always thought about it is you put the money into creating the great product and then you leverage the product as your marketing. And we live in a world where, you know, obviously not only consumer views, good and bad products are going to get discovered. So you better be a good product, but also, you know, journalists give you more press because pretty little things they want to give a bigger photo to merchants give you more shelf space because you look great in their store. And then again, going back to the Pinterest, Instagram, the visual medium of digital, Mm -hmm. you get so much out of, of that work. And then your your te- you know, you're going to see some of the work we're doing next year. Like your ads become more effective when you can feature the product in a very prominent way. And a big part of that too goes back to, you know, in-house versus out-of-house. Both at Method and Ali, we've built in-house capabilities really early. And that's a bet a lot of people wouldn't do, putting that overhead and bringing those people in who are the creators. So at both companies, almost every part of the product development process, the design, it's all done in-house. And I think there's no substitute for it. You're talking a lot about product from a design packaging standpoint. How do you think about differentiating the product inside the bottle? Yeah, it's you got to get that proposition right. And you know, great products are both rational and emotional. Yeah, so in terms of product, you've talked a lot about 
the design packaging elements of product. But how do you think about differentiating the product from within the bottle? Yeah, there's two ways to think about it. Uh, Great product propositions have a nice blend of rational and emotional. And it's really important to, to get that right and balanced. So part of the way we apply is we create what we call our product pillars at both companies. And those pillars tend to half live in the more emotional and half live in more of the rational. And then when I talk about artists and operators, I very much think about the, these artists as creators are the formulators. So the person doing the R&D and the science, they are so incredibly important as an artist in creating a unique product. The person doing the flavor or the fragrance, the packaging engineer who may be trying to figure out a different dispenser or a use of material that changes the experience. And at the heart of it, I always say it's about winning on product experience because it's, it's hard to win on an attribute. You know, attributes, benefits, experiences, like attributes and benefits tend to get commoditized in a hurry. Experiences are where people pay a premium. And experience has to be both how the product functions as well as those other emotional, you know, connection points. So across the two businesses that you've built at this point, has there been a moment where you really had to bet the company? We had to bet the company both times on Target. Hmm. Um, a little later, we were in 800 stores, but if Target had failed for us, we would never have gotten the scale to make Method work. Here, we came out, we launched at Target first, and certainly if that had not worked, we were done. So far, so good on both those fronts, huh? So far, so good. <laughs> it's been a good bet. <laughs> what's going to be the What's going to be the third company that that goes big in Target? Uh, you know, I think there's a lot in the health space. I'm definitely. I can as as I've moved closer into that, going from from home to health, there's a tremendous amount of white space still there. So we're not going to break any news on this podcast. <laughs> we got uh, our uh, hand, uh, we got our hands full with all. You're just going to chase into you know different product categories with better and better economics. Basically, <laughs> that's <laughs> right. Higher growth, uh, higher we're, margin. Where do gross margins go in the next exactly. one? <laughs> Software. I think I think Wayne and I can we, we can we can triangulate on this one. That's right. We'll just walk up and down Target. That's right. Well, obviously, we, you've, you've had a number of, of highs to date. But before we get to that, is there a particular low point within this entrepreneurial journey of Method, Ollie, that, you, that you'd highlight? Oh, Method, there were so many. I mean, you know, longer tenure there and, you know, ups and downs. There's a roller coaster figuring this thing out. Definitely uh, back in 2008 was low. We had a reduced headcount and we ran the, the business like a family. And that just felt like such a betrayal to how we had set up the culture. It was unfortunately the right thing to do to put the company on better financial footing to go on to do the great success that it that it has become. But that was just uh, pretty horrific for Adam and I, and uh, it's something that we pledge in our careers will never ever happen. So you know, I run Ali much leaner than uh, than what we did with Method. But as a rock star entrepreneur, I'm sure there's been a lot of highs. Is there a, one particular high point that you that that really stands out in your mind? I think being being able to be on the set of Friends because the dish soap was on the set and being an extra in the show. Um, which episode? Which episode? Was this? Uh, it's when Rachel is pregnant. Uh, wait, wasn't what? Rachel's pregnant in a bunch of the them? One, uh, <laughs> I, know, I just remember running out of the cafe. You're going to make uh, me watch like 15 episodes here. I'm coffee drinker number six in the background in a nice. black shirt. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of the, the highs for me are, are really focused around the culture and seeing people grow and just the way we've been able to, to, to blur the personal and professional and probably the plant that we built in the inner city in Chicago called the Soapbox, the spending – whenever I spend time with the team there who are mostly from the local community and how much they're actually having the opportunity to enjoy their, uh, their time working with us and the – it just – you know, factory cultures are usually not great cultures to work in, and we're so proud that we created a culture that's seamless to every part of our company. And anytime I visit the soapbox, I think that's always the the high. <laughs> Last question. Um, so, at this point, what's keeping you up at night? Three kids. Nah, that's a good answer. You know, um, what's keeping me up at night is just more of trying to manage efficiency and the schedule and. And um, we're very fortunate that Ollie's growing so fast. Um, but so much of it is just time management and making sure you're accessible to your team and you know, balancing the personal and the professional. It's, uh, it's really hard to do. 
so that that's the part that's probably my always ongoing struggle um, right now of keeping me up at at night, alongside you know, Russian hacking tweets, uh, <laughs> you know, the rogue. So no one's tyrants. taking. You, you haven't had any uh, any hackers take over QuickBooks yet? Because we've seen oh, seen that. I mean, where 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 someone literally t- holds your accounting system hostage, and you have to pay a ransom to get your. Your accounting system back. Well, Hopefully. now I'm not going to sleep at night. Oh, yeah. Tell me that's happening too. We're it, just like, definitely. We're just going to go lo-fi. You know, we're, we're, we're going to get off computers and we're going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> graph, just pure graph that's paper. Right. How of, hack uh, a notebook? I know. Rob, I think this is a really interesting story that shows the power of a retail partner who really believes in you from the start. And it's very much deserved. If you think about Eric Ryan's track record as an entrepreneur of what they were able to do together at Method, creating this beautiful bottle of a brand that became synonymous with Target. Mm -hmm. And you could see why that credibility led to Target really wanting to lean in when Eric was starting his next brand. For sure. So here's an interesting one. Do you agree with Eric's stance that there aren't boring categories, only boring products? I do. I think it's a great way of thinking about it. I mean, honestly, within the CPG space, I think a lot of our founders um, just think in the same way where it's, you're trying to shake things up, right? You're trying to take something that might be a bit dusty, but reinvent it. And Eric's been phenomenal at doing that. I mean, he's a true entrepreneur in every sense of the word. Uh, he really he wants to challenge himself and he wants to show up to work every day and feel a little bit scared. And I like what he said about, you know, at some point at Method, you know, he, he realized that he was getting a little bit more complacent. But something Eric's been doing a long time, apparently, without getting tired of it is sailing. I'm a water bug. I like all types hmm. of water, even the frozen kind that you ski on. Um, I sail, kite surf. You know, winter season here kicks off pretty soon, so we'll be up in the Sierras a lot. Um, but yeah, I like – I relax. Typical type A, I relax by staying in motion. And sailing has been a big, big part of that, as you've mentioned. Uh, tell us about any 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 good sailing stories. I've, n- I've not been racing as much as I would like lately. But, you know, the thing with sailing – I heard uh, Kennedy – John F. Kennedy used to talk about this is to be good at sailing, it's all about anticipation. You know, you adjust your sails before the wind hits it. Uh, wind is constantly shifting right. you know, directions of velocity. And, um, so it's all about anticipation and thinking five steps ahead. And I find that applies to being an entrepreneur in such a big way. And very fortunate going through the second time around, I was telling the team the other day, is like we know how to adjust the sails before the wind hits it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a pretty valuable uh, skill to finally learn. And it- you know, Adam Lowry shares in this sailing passion as well, right? He does. That's how we know each other. We've done races together, and uh, we both have a very common love for the sea. So in case Adam's listening, who's, who's the better sailor? Adam is definitely the much better, the oh. better you don't sailor. Have to say oh, that. you don't have to say that. Oh. That's, we're going to cut that thing. <laughs> I know. I remember, you're, you're, supposed to, you're, you're always supposed to t- – it should be you. Uh, that's – I remember in junior sailing, there was years that we were uh, very competitive, but now he uh, he went on to try for an Olympic campaign, and uh, yeah, he's a, he's a much better sailor than I am today. <laughs> this is our rapid fire game. First thing that comes to your mind is 60 seconds here. Let's get it started. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. First thing you read every day is? My phone. What's your favorite movie? Boyhood. What's your celebrity crush? Kristen Bell. Karaoke song you're most likely to belt out? Uh, Sweet Caroline. Your hometown is famous for? Autos. What's your guilty pleasure? Uh, Doing podcast. Uh, (laughs) First car you ever drove? Uh, Escort GT. Do you recline on airplanes? Uh, Yes. If you could drink one thing for the rest of your life besides water, what would you choose? Whiskey. What was your last New Year's resolution? Stop making New Year's resolutions. <laughs> if you were stranded on an island and you could only bring one thing, what would it be? Water. What's the last hashtag you used? Uh, happy Inside Out. Where's the next place you'd like to travel? Uh, Bora Bora. If a movie was made of your life, you'd be played by... Um, <laughs> Ellen DeGeneres. Oh, talent that you don't have but wish you did. Uh, dance. What's your most hated food? Uh, eggplant. If you could be any pro athlete, who would you be? Um, Kobe Bryant. Political issue you care most about? Gun control. Favorite TV show? So many right now. 
Uh, could be enthusiasm. During the last week, have you looked at your phone while driving? <laughs> the last hour. <laughs> uh, do you... P- oh, Ooh, tied. You were close. Oh, good work, <laughs> Eric Ryan. Tied? Tied. That's 21. No passes. Yeah, no passes. I think you, I think you <laughs> might be the new... Well, before we let you go, we wanted to ask you one last question, uh, which is for all of the entrepreneurs who are out there. Any words of wisdom? Yeah, my, you know, I think one of my best piece of advice is always, I was saying earlier, is breaking things down into bite-sized little steps because the, the challenge of being an entrepreneur is so much of it is the mental game. Like the mechanics of starting a company is it's not hard. It's so much more of like overcoming your own sense of self-confidence to make it happen. And when you keep things in bite-sized little steps, and like I said in the beginning, like don't even worry about starting a company. Just figure out if you have a good idea. And then once you do that, figure out like, ah, can I get on a shelf or pilot in some way? And then before you know it, you have a company. Well, most entrepreneurs hope for even a fraction of the success you've had. So again, thanks for joining us, Eric, on Unfinished Biz. And uh, on behalf of me and Robin, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back on the next episode with Veronica and Miguel Garza of Siete Foods, a family business making delicious grain-free tortillas and tortilla chips. But why did this tightly-knit Mexican-American family decide to launch a business without key ingredients in their native cuisine? All I would tell people is they're an almond-based tortilla and they're gluten-free, grain-free. Buy them if you want. <laughs> but I, I'm not going to tell you the ingredients because I was so scared uh, that somebody was going to copy me. Uh, because in the back of my mind, I thought potentially, I mean, this could be a business and I don't want to ruin my chances. That's next time on Unfinished Biz. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.